0: Last week, our focus was on praising and thanking God in our prayers, praising Him for who He is and thanking Him for what He's done. So I'm going to ask the servers to go ahead and come forward at this time to take those communion trays. And here's what we're going to do today during our communion time. They'll be passing the trays over the next couple minutes. And uh, if you want to partake, partake of communion with us today, we invite you to. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we practice open communion here what I'm going to ask that you to do is just hold that bread and hold that juice. And after everyone in the room has had a chance to get the bread and the juice, we're going to take an opportunity to get into some small groups and simply praise Jesus and thank Him for what He's done. Because remember what Jesus did during the Last Supper. They had just had that last meal together. He had already washed their feet. He had already told them that He was going to be led to be killed, but on three day, after three days he would rise from the dead. And it says there, after the meal, Jesus took the bread and first of all he gave thanks. And after he gave thanks is when he broke it and passed it to his disciples. And so that, those are two very significant words. Jesus gave thanks. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is telling us about the right way to take communion... He said, whenever we eat of the bread and take of the juice, we proclaim his death until he comes. And so as we proclaim his death, we praise and thank him, do we not? We're saying, Lord, thank you for what you did 2,000 years ago. And so as your row has gotten your bread and juice, I just encourage you to go ahead and stand up and and get in a small group, maybe four or five, maybe as many as ten. Let's not go any larger than that. But as we get in those groups and we give the rest of those in here a chance to get the bread and the juice, we're going to give you a few moments, a couple, three minutes, just in those small groups to fill in the blank. Here's the start of your simple prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for, and fill in the blank. And so go ahead and stand and get in some small groups there. And I encourage you, as we're talking about prayer this month, some of you are a little bit uncomfortable praying in front of others. I want to just stretch you over these next few minutes. I encourage you just to to lift up some simple words. Jesus, I thank you for saving me. Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross. Jesus, I thank you for washing away my sins. And Go around the circle and lift up those prayers of praise and thanks to Jesus. And if you are super uncomfortable with this, simply say pass, and it will go to the next person. But I encourage you, stretch yourself a little bit. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. I'll give you a couple, three minutes, and then we'll take communion together. After that last supper, on the night Jesus was arrested and went to the cross, He took that bread, and after giving thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Go ahead and take that cracker. And in the same way, after they had broken and taken the bread, He took the wine or the juice and he said, This represents the new covenant. My blood that is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. You're our creator, you're our Lord, you are our Savior, you're the one that died to set us free. And we thank you for coming into our lives, for washing us clean, for making us a new creation in Christ. We thank you for what you've done. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. There was a certain security guard that was working at a construction site. It was a pretty boring job. It was his first day in the shift he was on, a five day shift that week. And at the end of the workday, he noticed one of the construction guys coming toward the exit of the construction site, making his way toward the parking lot. And the guy was pushing a wheelbarrow. And the security guard stopped him. looked and noticed that the guy had a small box inside the wheelbarrow that was taped shut on top. The security guard asked him, excuse me, what do you have in the wheelbarrow? And the construction guy said, a box. I can see that you have a box. What is inside the box? Sawdust. Why do you have sawdust in the box? My daughter just got a new hamster. It needs some sawdust. The guy said, Open it up. I want to see for myself. So the guy pulls back the tape, opens the box. Security guard takes his index finger, runs it through the sawdust. Lo and behold, it's just sawdust in the box. He peeks under the wheelbarrow. Nothing fishy. Okay, you can go. Next day, exact same thing happens. Man comes with a wheelbarrow, Ask him the question, what do you have in the wheelbarrow? The guy says, a box. What do you have in the box? Sawdust, opens it up, runs his finger through it, nothing. All right, I guess you can go. This goes on for five days. On the fifth day, the security guard is so frustrated, he says, I need to just ask you something. I've got a pretty good sixth sense. I know you're up to something. I'm convinced you're stealing something. What is it? I I tell you what, if you shoot straight with me, if you're honest with me, I promise I will not rat you out. I won't call the authorities nothing. I just got to know, what have you been stealing? The guy answered, wheelbarrows. (laughs) He missed what was right under his nose. And I got thinking about that. It's so often the same thing with us when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Because when it comes down to it, we want to have a deeper walk with Christ, don't we? We want our relationship with Him to be stronger. We want to mature in our faith. When we hear of certain Christians who are immature, we don't want to be perpetual baby Christians, do we? We want to mature in our faith. And so we look high and low for a solution to our spiritual lethargy, a solution to our spiritual stagnation, our weak faith our walk that's not growing like we want it to, and we jump at the latest Joel Olstein book, hoping that holds the secret for having a growing, vibrant faith, and that doesn't work, trust me. And we jump at the next stop, well, maybe I need to drop out and go to another church. Maybe this church just isn't feeding me, and so we'll go to another church, or we'll catch this self-help book, or whatever it may be, we search high and low for the solution, and all the while, God's answer has been right underneath our noses, hasn't it? God simply says the answer is prayer. Prayer is the answer. Prayer is the solution for seeing our maturity in Christ grow, to see our relationship with Jesus Christ deepen. Prayer is the answer. You know why? Prayer is the answer because prayer connects me with the greatest need meter in the whole wide universe. Prayer connects my needs with the greatest need meter. And there are certain things that God will not do in my life unless I pray because He's waiting for that connection to take place. And the only reason the connection doesn't take place is because you and I choose not to pray. And so God has given us the wonderful answer in prayer. And this month, we're diving into God's Word together and seeing how we can deepen our prayer lives so our relationships with Christ and our Christian walk and blossom. Uh, open up, please, to Matthew chapter 6. This is our home-based passage of this month, Matthew 6, where we find the Lord's Prayer. And each week we're reading this prayer together. We're looking at those basic truths about prayer that Jesus teaches us here. And then we springboard off it to find some other scriptures and, and teachings in God's Word to help reinforce what we are learning in the Lord's Prayer. And so we're in Matthew chapter 6. As always, we have a message notes for you in the bulletin. I encourage you to pull those out along with a pencil or pen to jot down some notes along the way. I made sure that your handouts today were chock full of good stuff to help you grow in your prayer lives and in your walk with Christ. And so I encourage you to have all those handy as we dive into Matthew chapter 6 together. Say amen if you're there. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one of the blue ones from the rack in front of you. And on several of these scriptures I have you turn to today, you'll find page numbers there on your handout. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 5. Jesus said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, hoping and praying that You will open our minds and hearts today. Lord, teach us through Your Word about prayer. As Your disciples came to You when they saw You praying one day, Lord Jesus, and they waited for You to finish, and then they came up and just humbly asked You, Lord, would You teach us to pray? And You responded by giving them this prayer. I pray, Lord, that we would have that same spirit as those disciples did 2,000 years ago. And we would just humbly come to You, Jesus, and simply ask, Lord, would You teach us to pray? And all God's people said, Amen. So we see so much in this great passage here. Jesus points out here that our praying should not be like the hypocrites. It should not be like the religious leaders in His day that would go on the street corners and wax eloquently, proclaiming their prayers for all to hear. Jesus says, I don't want you to pray like the religious experts. He says, I also don't want you to pray like the pagans do. They babble and and go on and on and on, just ad nauseum, praying all these many words that amount to nothing. He says, don't pray like the pagans either. And he says, this then is how you should pray. And he gives us that Lord's Prayer. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, we find a a beautiful four-point prayer model in this Lord's Prayer. The P in Pray stands for praise and thanks. We talked about that last week. The P in praise stands for praise and thanks. Our, our prayers, as a rule of thumb, should always include a hefty amount of praising God for who He is and thanking Him for what He's done. The R in praise stands for repent. We're going to be talking about that one today. The R stands for repent. We need to spend some time making sure that we're humbly getting right with God. And asking Him to cleanse us of our sin. The A in pray stands for? Ask. We all know that one, don't we? Gimme, gimme, gimme. And I'm suggesting this month that we have at least three parts to our asking. Ask for your church. I hope you're praying for your church every day. Ask also for our nation and for our community that God would move and pray for your neighbors. And then finally, make sure you're asking for your family and your, yourself as well, the needs that you have that you need to bring to God. And then finally, the Y stands for yield. When all is said and done, we want to surrender to God and say, May your will be done, not mine. And yielding is such an important part of our prayer. So today we're going to focus in on this second point of prayer, the R, which stands for repent. We're going to focus today on repentance. And I'm calling this message Spiritual U-Turns in Prayer. This morning, I believe that God desires to teach us how to repent and better. Because when we talk about repentance, many Christians boil repentance down to this. In my prayer, I'm going to go to God and say, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, amen. There I did it. I repented. That's not repentance. Repentance is something much bigger, something much deeper than simply saying, Oops, forgive me. And many Christians have this idea of that's what repentance is. Uh, Maybe you cry a tear now and again, but basically you just admit you messed up and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, and move on. But repentance, we find in Scripture, is something much greater than that. Now, the word repent means to change your mind. Metanoia is what the word is, metanoia in Greek, and literally it means a change of mind. A change of mind. But it's not simply a a change of mind. Repentance always is a change of mind that leads to a change in your behavior. That's a critical element of repentance. So repentance is never simply saying, I'm sorry, forgive me. It's a changing of your mind about what you have done which leads to a change in your behavior once that amen is spoken. So whenever we hear the word repent... I want you to think of the word change. Okay? Repent. Repent. It's like a a bad pep rally chant. I say repent, you say change. Repent. Repent. I say repent, you say change. Repent. Repent. Hey, I'm glad that worked. That could have flopped badly. All right? So whenever I say the word repent, you think... That's what repentance is. If there is no change, there is no true repentance. Also, think of it this way. Repentance is a turning. Repentance is a turning. When I repent, my thoughts turn from something old to something new. My heart turns from beating for me, myself, and I to beating toward something else. And as a result, my behavior turns from one activity to another. That's why I often describe repentance as a spiritual U-turn. Because repentance always involves a turning. It involves a 180, a spiritual U-turn that always includes a turning from and a turning to. Now most of the time we find this word repent or repentance used in Scripture. It's referring to a turning from sin and a turning to God and His righteous laws. Not always, but most of the time repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. So repentance, bottom line, by definition, always involves a changing and it always involves a turning. So if my repentance doesn't involve me changing in any way, it's not true repentance. Repentance demands change. And if my repentance doesn't involve me turning from something inferior in order to turn toward the one true God whose ways are always superior, it's not true biblical repentance, is it? You with me so far? Okay, because we're going to get a little deeper here. You still with me, right? Okay. So when John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus Christ's coming, John the Baptist's message out there in the wilderness where he was, you know, wearing his his camel's skin and, and, you know, camel's hair, I should say. And he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's living out there in the wilderness. People are flocking to him. He's baptizing him. His message boiled down to one word, repent. And so what John the Baptist was saying is, you need to change your ways. You need to change the way you're thinking. You need to change the way you're speaking. You need to change the way you're acting. You need to make a spiritual U-turn because the Messiah is coming soon. And you need to turn from yourself and start turning toward him because he's almost here. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. He has about a three and a half year ministry. And Jesus' message as he shared the good news of his coming with all those who would listen, his message boiled down to this according to Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus' message boiled down to two things, repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Those two go hand in hand. That was his message. They had to believe in him, or to say it another way, they had to trust in him. And as they believed and trusted in Him, they must turn from their sin, turn from their evil ways, and follow His commands. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. Jesus came. We have to trust and believe in Him, turn from our sin, and start following Him as Lord and Savior. Now, with that having been said, I want to let you know that without a doubt, this word repent does most of the time in Scripture refer to sinners turning from their sin so that they can start turning to God. But I want this morning to share with you some scriptures to broaden our understanding of repentance, because I think repentance cannot be limited to simply a turning from sin and a turning toward God. It's much broader than that. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. This is a passage, as I read it, it'll sound familiar to most of you. It's a well-known passage, but we normally don't think of this passage necessarily in the context of of repentance, but it's really good. I think it's going to be eye-opening for many of us as it comes to learning how to repent in our prayers. Isaiah chapter 55, we're going to have it on the screen for you as well, but I'd love for you to see it for yourself in your own Bibles. Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 6. Say amen if you're there. Okay, by the way, if you're hunting for it in your Bibles, Isaiah is a little more than half the way through your Bible. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Let me stop there for now. Do you notice how God is commanding his people to change in these two verses? He says in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way. That describes a turning, doesn't it? Forsake to turn from your evil ways to something different. Also in verse 7, let him turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him. So verse 7 in particular is talking about a change from being a sinner to being a follower of God. It's talking about a turning from your sin and a turning toward God. Repentance is talked about in verse 7. And now these verses that we're even more familiar with, look at verses 8 and 9 with me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When we think of repentance, we tend to think of it in a a very narrow sense. I sinned, that was wrong, so I will tell God I'm sorry, I'll ask Him to forgive me, and I'll try to do better next time. But I believe God's Word teaches us that repentance for individual sins should stem from a much broader conviction. You see, repentance isn't simply a turning from sin. Repentance is a conviction grounded in the truths of Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Repentance is grounded in this conviction about God and a conviction about us. And I would suggest to you that if you don't, in your heart of hearts, believe these verses here in Isaiah chapter 55, your repentance will always tend to be a bit shallow. You see, true repentance arises from a deep-seated conviction that God's thoughts are what? Higher than our thoughts. One of you realizes that. That's great. So this conviction is that God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. This conviction deep in my heart is that God's ways are higher than my own ways. His thoughts are always higher than my thoughts. His ways are always higher than my ways. So from a broader perspective, repentance is not just reserved for occasions when I've sinned and I need to turn to God for forgiveness. Catch this. As we go to God in prayer, regardless of whether or not there is unconfessed sin in our lives, repentance is a realigning of my thoughts with God's thoughts. Repentance is a realigning of my words with God's words. Repentance is a realigning of my priorities with God's priorities. It's a realigning of my ways with God's ways. Once again, regardless of whether or not my ways, my thoughts, my priorities, and my words were even sinful. I may not have even sinned, but there is still at times a need for a realigning because my ways are not His ways and my thoughts are not His thoughts. I go into prayer thinking one way and I leave prayer thinking another Because prayer changes my thoughts, does it not? I go into prayer behaving a certain way, and I leave prayer behaving differently, because prayer changes my behavior. This is so important to understand, Christians. As Christians, we don't only need to turn and make changes when we're doing something evil. Sometimes we need to turn and make changes when we're doing something good. Think about that. Sometimes we need to turn and make changes when we're doing something good. Because sometimes what is good is the enemy of what is best. And God's ways are always best, are they not? So as we grow in Christ, it's bound to happen. We're going to be doing lots of good things. That's kind of what we do as Christians, right? We're supposed to be good, right? We're supposed to do good things. And so if you're living for Christ, you will be doing some good things. And as you grow in your walk with Christ, it's bound to happen, I promise you. You'll be just plugging along, doing some good things, and maybe it's your job. You're doing some good work at your job, or you're in a relationship with a friend, and you're doing some good ministry with that friend, or maybe you're involved in a certain ministry at church, and you're doing some good work in the ministry, and all of a sudden, bam, God closes the door. And you're left dazed and confused because you have no idea why you were plugging along, doing something good, and all of a sudden God stopped it. It doesn't make any sense to us. Well, God, what are you doing? I was saying things that are good. I was prioritizing, for a change, things that are good. I was doing things that are good and all of a sudden you've made it clear I'm not supposed to do those things or say those things anymore. Why not? Because remember that He is the vine and we are the branches and at times He gets some pruning done to take things out of our lives, even sometimes some good things, to prepare us for better growth and what is even better for us and the ministry He has us in. So sometimes it is true in the kingdom of God, what is good is the enemy of what is best. And that's the broader understanding of repentance. Don't just think of repentance as something I need when I know I've sinned, I've goofed up and I need to ask for forgiveness. Repentance should penetrate all of our prayers. Herein lies one of the greatest truths about prayer. Do our prayers change God? Yes. As we've seen this month, there are certain things that God will not do unless we ask Him to do them in prayer. Our prayers do move God. Prayers do, in a sense, change God's actions. But even more so, prayer changes us, does it not? Prayer changes us. And I want to share with you a few psalms this morning that beautifully illustrate this point of how God's Word as it penetrates our minds and hearts, as we go to Him with this attitude of repentance that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as we go to Him with our problems and our confusion and our difficulties, I want you to notice in the Psalms how God changes us even in the midst of our prayers. So turn to the second Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. And once you get to Psalm 2, turn over one chapter to chapter 3 because I gave you the wrong Psalm. Okay? Psalm chapter 3. beautiful example of David changing in the midst of his prayer. It starts in verse 1, Psalm chapter 3, with these two verses. "O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Can you relate? Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him Selah. Now, we don't know for sure what Selah means. We know it's some sort of musical term as these prayers and poems were sung 3,000 years ago. But one thing we believe is Selah means stop and think about what has just been said. Okay? So we're going to do that. We're going to stop and think about what he said in these first two verses. Oh Lord, many of my foes, put yourself in David's shoes. Look at what it says above verse 1. It says this was a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Remember the situation. David had been king for over 30 years, and all of a sudden his grown son Absalom decides to lead a coup to overthrow the throne. He wants to kill his own dad, David. He wants to drive him out of Jerusalem, wipe out all of his supporters. And so David did not want to raise his sword against his own son, so he fled for his life from Jerusalem. And so he's fleeing from his own son that with vindictive heart With a vindictive heart, he wants to kill David. And as he's fleeing, he writes this psalm. And look at verses 1 and 2 again. Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? Can you put yourself in his shoes and see that he feels overwhelmed? He feels attacked. He feels, verse 2... Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. At that point in time, he's thinking, God has delivered me so many times in the past, but perhaps my critics are correct. Maybe they're right. Maybe God won't deliver me this time. Maybe I'm finally getting what's been coming to me all these years. And so David, in these first two verses, is crying out, thinking, I may be a goner. Let me ask you, is David sinning in these first two verses? I don't think so. He's just being real. He's overwhelmed. He's stressed. He feels attacked. He wonders if God's going to deliver him. But then notice the change that begins to take place in verse 3. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry out and He answers me from His holy hill, Selah. Think about that. He brings deliverance. Now I can go on. Verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I've never prayed that, but that's not a bad prayer. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. You see the powerful transformation that takes place in the midst of his prayer? I don't know if God's going to deliver me. All my enemies are saying he's not. My son's coming against me. I'm overwhelmed. I seem to have more enemies than friends. I may be a goner, but in the midst of the prayer, that change, that turning takes place. And before we know it, he's saying, oh God, you are a shield about me. And you're going to deliver me and everyone who follows you. I want you to turn over ten chapters of Psalm 13. David writes Psalm 13 and does a similar thing in this chapter. Psalm chapter 13. This time it takes him a little longer to make that shift. That's okay. Sometimes it takes us a little longer. In this case, it's four verses before we find the turn. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will overthrow me. My foes will rejoice when I fall see this challenge he's going through? He feels overwhelmed. He feels attacked. He feels like his enemies are coming against him. He's just convinced that his enemy will say, I will overcome him. His foes will laugh over his grave because his foes have finally defeated him. But then there's that turn, this time in verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for He is has been good to me. What a beautiful change that takes place in the midst of this prayer. What a beautiful turning. It's one of the reasons the Psalms are so good because they're just so raw, they're so real. You experience an emotion, you can find that same emotion in the Psalms. You experience discouragement, you can find discouragement in the Psalms. But so often we find what we just saw in chapters 3 and 13, that discouragement experiences in the midst of the prayer a turning, a changing. And before that Psalm comes to an end, he is thanking and praising God because he knows in his heart of hearts that God is going to save him. God does that. He changes us in the midst of our prayers. What a marvelous change that God carries out as we come to Him with that broader spirit of repentance. I want to give you five tips for better repenting in your prayers. We've touched on two of these, so these first two I'll go through pretty quickly. But I want to make sure on the back of your handouts there, I wanted to make sure you had all five of these in, in one easy to refer to space on your handout. So the first tip to better repenting in our prayers, because I do want this message to be very practical as you're growing in your prayer life this month. Tip number one, as we pray, we must be ready and willing to change. God will ask us to turn from our ways and embrace His ways. Amen? I think we've sufficiently covered this tip this morning. There has to be a willingness and a readiness to change and a turn. Tip number two. As we pray, we must remind ourselves that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And God's ways are. Everyone together, God's thoughts are. And God's ways are. God's thoughts are. God's ways are. I say repent. You say change. Repent. Change. Repent. Okay, we still awake out there? Tell someone next to you. Repent. And see what they say back to you. That wasn't half bad. God's thoughts are higher. His ways are higher. Moving on to tip number 3, 4, and 5. We'll look at these together. Tip 3, 4, and 5. As we pray, we must humble ourselves before God. We must humble ourselves before God. Tip number 4, as we pray, we must confess our sins to God. And tip number 5, as we pray, we must grieve over our sins. We must grieve over our sins. Now, there are three prayers in the Old Testament that I've been dying to share with you this month. I just didn't have a good opportunity in the first couple of weeks. I want to just quickly introduce these to you today because these three prayers beautifully illustrate these last three tips of making sure that we are humbling ourselves before God, confessing our sins to God, and grieving over our sin. If you want to look at three great prayers from the Old Testament, just remember the number nine. Because all three of these prayers are found in chapter 9. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel chapter 9. And so turn to the first of those, Ezra chapter 9. That's a little bit more obscure book in the Old Testament, so you'll find that if you're using a blue Bible on page 469. Ezra is just uh, maybe 100 pages or so before the Psalms. Ezra chapter 9, I want to just share with you a few verses from this prayer. Here's the context. Ezra has helped orchestrate a a movement of the Jews from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And he's helped to oversee as they rebuilt the temple. And now he's making sure that the temple practices are brought back into effect. And as he's doing that, he notices and finds out that the people, even the priests and the leaders had not stayed true to God's commands and started marrying the Ammonites and the Moabites and Midianites. And they were mixing uh, their pure religion, pure uh, worshiping of God with pagan uh, rituals and pagan worship. And he's just over come with grief because he knows that his people have not been obeying God's commands. And so we pick up here in verse 3 of Ezra chapter 9, and this is what we read. When I heard this, Ezra writes, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. How many of you have been so overcome with a spirit of repentance that you pulled hair from your head? That's some pretty serious repentance going on right here, isn't it? Verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed, Oh my God! God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. The rest of the prayer is good as well, but that gives you an idea of that repentance taking place in his prayer. He's humbling Himself. He's grieving over the sin. He's confessing the sin of his people. Now turn one book to the right, Nehemiah. What chapter? Chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Happens to be the longest prayer in the whole Bible. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 9. But we'll get a, a similar idea of a spirit of repentance. In this case, Nehemiah has helped lead the project to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem after the people came back from captivity in Babylon. Those walls are completed. And on the uh, certain day, uh, they proclaim a time to pray to the Lord. And in chapter 9, on the 24th day of the month, uh, the seventh month of the year, they come together and they pray this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together "...fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God." So a quarter of the day would have been three hours... And so they spend three hours reading God's Word out loud together. And they spend three hours confessing sin to God. And so that gives us a little snapshot. Skip down uh, to near the end of this prayer, starting in verse 33 of Nehemiah 9. At the end of the prayer, he says this, In all that has happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully, while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them, in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. Now let's move on to the third of those prayers in the Old Testament I want to draw your attention to. It's in Daniel, what chapter? Daniel chapter 9. Another marvelous prayer. In this case, this prayer was prayed a few years earlier before Ezra and Nehemiah's prayer. Daniel is there in Babylon. They've come to the end of that 70 years of captivity. God had promised that after 70 years, He would allow the people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem. And so Daniel is praying to God here in Daniel chapter 9, asking God to honor that promise and bring the people back to Israel And so in chapter 9, it starts in verse, uh, let's start in verse uh, 3. So I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commands. We have sinned and done wrong." We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. I want us to think of those three prayers together, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel's prayers. I want you, maybe you notice this, that in all three prayers, The prayers humbled themselves before God. Ezra fell on his knees. And remember, he tore his cloak and he tore his robe. He had his hands spread out to God. Nehemiah and Daniel both put on sackcloth and ashes, a sign of humility. All three prayers demonstrate a grieving over sin. Uh, Daniel and Nehemiah fasted and pleaded for God's mercy. Ezra was appalled by his fellow Israelites' sin, and he flat out told God, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to even lift up my face to you. And in all three prayers, the prayers confess sin, and they seek God's forgiveness. And guess what God did in response? What did He do in response to their prayers of confession and repentance? He answered their prayers, didn't He? Each and every time. Isn't that just like God? Sometimes we design worship services that we like. God loves it when we design worship services that He likes. Sometimes we design worship services that attract men. First and foremost, we must design them that attract God. And what attracts God are humble prayer, repentance, confession of sin, True worship where we just in our humility and in our weakness just cry out to God and say, God, I don't necessarily have the right words. I can't even get my jumbled thoughts together, God, but all I know is I need You. And you better believe God is attracted to that kind of prayer. He is attracted to that kind of worship. He is attracted to that kind of preaching. We come humbly before God and say, I need You. I'm desperate for You. I want to leave you with two passages before we close today. Two more scriptures that are so good on the topic of repentance. First of all, 1 John 1, 8, and 9. Many of you are familiar with these verses. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe this promise from God's Word? If you humbly come to him and confess your sin and ask for forgiveness, do you believe he'll forgive you? You bet he will. One of the greatest lies peddled in Christianity is that a priest can forgive your sins. A priest can't forgive your sins. A pastor can't forgive your sins. Your grandma Rose can't forgive your sins. Aunt Myrtle, as sweet as she is, that dear, dear saint, she cannot forgive your sins. Only Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. So you've got to go to Him. You've got to go to Him. One more scripture. Acts chapter 3. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Did you catch that? Repent then. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Today some of us are really thirsty. Some of us come today and we're thirsty and we look at our own lives and say, you know, honestly, Pastor, I'm a Christian, but ain't much going on in my Christian walk. I feel stagnant. My prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. I'm just missing something. And I came today hoping maybe I'd have something, that I'd I'd grasp something. I want you to know today that for many of us, for many of us, what is missing is this simple humbling of ourselves before God in prayer and saying, God, I'm ready to change. God, I'm ready to turn. God, I'm convinced that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts and your ways are higher than my ways. And so, God, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to be ready to turn. I'm going to be ready to change. And God, I'm going to ask you in this moment to change me. And I'm going to hold on to your promise that if I confess my sins to you, that you will be faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I'm going to be faithful. Uh, Holding you, Lord, to that promise that if I come to you and confess my sin and I turn from my sin, that truly times of refreshing will come from you. Do you believe that times of refreshing come from the Lord? Do you believe that, church? Because it's true. I can speak words of encouragement into your life, but I can't refresh you like Jesus can. I can speak words of hope into your life, but I can't refresh you like Jesus can. I cannot forgive your sins. I cannot change your heart. I cannot change your priorities or your way of thinking. Only Jesus can. And so at the heart of prayer is this beautiful, glorious truth that we come to God when we have sinned. And we even come to God when we have not sinned. And regardless of whether there's sin or not in my life, we come to Him and say, You are God and I am not. Your ways are higher. Your thoughts are higher. I don't know what I'm doing, but you do. Help me, God. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, the end of that beautiful chapter that talks about the child, the baby being knit together in its mother's womb, where it says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, at the end of that glorious chapter, it says, "Oh God, search me and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's something that only Jesus can do. Lord Jesus, we come to you as humbly as we know how. God, sometimes we just lay in our bed with our covers tucked underneath our chin and In the comfort of those cozy covers, we lift up our prayers to you and we move on to our amen and flip on the boob tube or whatever we do, Lord, and move on with our evening. Sometimes we lift up these token prayers to you in positions that are comfortable for us. Lord, maybe this week you're calling some of us to get down on our knees. Maybe like Ezra, Lord, maybe this week you're calling... Some of us to get on our faces before You with our hands spread out to You and say, God, I am too ashamed to even look up to You. And Lord, we know that when we come to You humbly, when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, You are faithful to forgive. You are faithful to cleanse. You are faithful to lift our heads off the ground, to lift our faces out of the dirt give us hope and give us peace and give us encouragement and give us strength and give us the answers and solutions that have escaped us for so long. Lord, do your work in us we pray. And I pray if there's anyone here today who's never put you in charge of their lives that they would do so today in Jesus name. Amen. As we sing